In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, God, for every blessing that you give us. And we thank you, O Lord, because you've allowed us to complete this year in peace. Grant us, O Lord, to have a better 2021, to be uh, living a life with you at all times, remembering you day by day, always feeling your presence and your love and the joy of being in your presence at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and are your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> good evening, everybody. I'm glad all of you guys could make it uh, today to this Q&A session. Um, if you would like to submit any questions to uh, any upcoming Q&A session, you can do so uh, here at the link uh, provided. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. <clears throat> the first question we have is in Philippians 4, verse 4, uh, St. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. How can something like rejoicing be a command? Isn't rejoicing a feeling? Um, this is a really good question because, um, you know, we read a lot about in the scriptures that we are called to be a joyful, that we are to have joy of our salvation, that we're all to be rejoicing. Um, and so we have to make the distinction uh, between what is, you know, what we would refer to as happiness um, versus what we refer to as joy. Um, rejoicing is is not a feeling, okay? It doesn't mean that as Christians, the types of rejoicing that we should have should not also involve an emotion. Of course, it should, right? But there are a lot of things that, um, you know, that we might experience in our life that even when Christ was said, saying that in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, right? This is what he said. So this tribulation that we have is going to involve negative experiences, right? That's why it's a tribulation. And, and on the face of it, as human beings, whenever we experience negative uh, circumstances, things that are not what we would want, we, we naturally feel some negative emotions, you know, sadness, disappointment, pain, suffering, right? And so in that sense, if you ask me, do I enjoy the circumstances of my life that I happen to be in at the moment that are causing me these, you know, this pain and suffering? No, the answer is no, I, I don't enjoy that. Like, I don't, I don't want that. I, I, if I had a choice, I would have chosen something else, right? So am I happy in those moments of suffering? No, I can't say that I'm happy in those moments in the sense that my, my natural body does not feel um, joyful emotions in that moment, okay? But if you take a, a like a bigger view, like a bigger a bigger view of faith of, of what our life is all about, right? Um, and we know that ultimately what, what Christ said in that verse that I mentioned is, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, right? I have overcome the world. Meaning that any negative experience that we have in life, we know that number one, it's temporary. Number two, it's for a reason. God is allowing it for a reason, okay? Number three, it shouldn't conquer us, right? Because because ultimately our, our, our life, what we choose to live for, our hope, our expectation um, is in the next life, right? Is in the joy that I experience with Christ, not only now, but in its fullness in the next life. That being said, right, we know of, you know, stories of um, people from the history of the church and the saints and so on, who lived completely oblivious, it would seem, to the pains of the things that are around them because they have been so immersed in the love of Christ that nothing around them even phases them or touches them because their faith is so strong, right? So the stronger our faith is, the more the things around us will not shatter us, will not, will not cause us to waver. Think of it from the perspective like, what, what is our world, right? When we feel that our world is falling apart, it's easy for us to lose faith. It's, it's easy for us to feel pain. It's easy for us to feel sadness, okay? But if I consider that what's happening around me in the world, even though it's difficult, is really small compared to the reality of, of the actual life, the real life, the spiritual life, you know, think about it like from the perspective of a child, you know? A child's world is pretty small in the sense that 
the things that they care about is pretty small. They're not thinking very, very big terms. They're thinking about, I have my house, my toys, my things, my family, and that's it. You know, for a child, um, when a toy breaks is a big deal for them, right? And they experience negative emotions and they cry, right? And then it might be a very, very heartfelt pain that they feel, right? As adults, we look at that and we're like, okay, I mean, that's that's not, you know, it's not good that the toy broke, but but it's not in the perspective of the bigger things, of the more important things that we are aware of as adults. It's not really that big a deal. Every, it, it can be replaced, especially if it's something very cheap. It's not something even that's, you know, that will need a lot of money to fix. But from the perspective of that child, because their worldview, their, their, the, 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 what they see as reality as the world is very small, for them, that toy occupies a large place in their life, right? So for us as Christians, it's a similar principle, right? If, if for me, the world, this world that we live in and all the attachments in it, okay, that I have and all the things that I love that is in it um, and all the dreams and the expectations that I have in it, if those things take up such a large part of my world, right? And then things go wrong in those things, then I'm gonna have, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very, very hurt. I'm gonna be devastated perhaps because that is my world, right? My world is falling apart. But if my world, right, sees that what's happening here on earth and what's happening to me is a relatively small compared to the bigger picture, right? In, in, in 1 Corinthians, when St. Paul was speaking about tribulation, he's saying the tribulations you're experiencing are light, you know, it's a light affliction that's only for a short time. And it doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory, right, that we will experience in heaven. So he was giving the perspective of put put things in perspective of what you what you what you feel, what you see around you. Okay. So in that sense, even though yes, at no point in time is those things going to be enjoyable, those negative things, those tribulations that we have in life going to be enjoyable. But for a person who is really placing their faith and their rejoicing is in God, it's going to be a much smaller ripple. It's going to be a much smaller effect that it has on me. And I will recover from it much quickly because I have a bigger view. My world is bigger. I, there is something more important than these smaller things that are happening. And I'm trying to minimize these things. I mean, the kinds of things I'm talking about could be very painful and very, very you know, horrible, right? The people experience in life. I'm not trying to minimize them. I'm just trying to say that in the perspective of the bigger, in the perspective of the eternal, and in the words of St. Paul himself, he refers to these things as a light affliction. So the real joy that we experience is based on faith, not based on a feeling, right? A feeling, you know, feelings change. Like I might wake up one day and I'm just in a bad mood. Why am I in a bad mood? I don't even know why. There, there's nothing really to point to that says I'm in a bad mood. I just don't feel good today. There's another day where I might feel very good. Why? Again, I'm, I'm not really sure. You know, that's the way emotions are. They're fickle, they're changing. They're, 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 they're not necessarily rooted in anything right? But the kinds of joy, rejoicing that we have in Christ is not just something that randomly changes from day to day. It's something that abides, and it's based on faith. It's based on the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit in me, granting me this joy out of the, the understanding and, and, and the realization of who I am, of who Christ is, of the salvation that Christ has offered me, of, of my future destiny, of the fact that things might not be going well today, but that doesn't mean that they will always be like this and that there is an end to every suffering that I experience and there's a reason for the suffering that I experience. So, so this is why um, joy comes from the Lord. Also in Galatians 5.22 speaks about the fruit of the spirit. Okay, And one of the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is the outcome of faith, like the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit in me produces in me fruit, right? Different characteristics about me that change and improve as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit working in me. And one of them is joy, right? So the more the Holy Spirit works in me, the more I, I follow the path of Christ, the more I, I, I you know, struggle against maybe um, the, 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 the desires of the flesh that I have, and the more I pursue the spiritual things, the more the work of the Holy Spirit is manifested in me and the more I feel joy that surpasses understanding, right? In the sense that it's not based on the experience. Like, you, you know, sometimes we, we meet people who everything in their life seems to be falling apart. 
and problem after problem after problem, and they don't ever get a break of, you know, different catastrophes and things happening to them, to their family, to, you know, and yet they're joyful, right? And, and the joy is coming from the fact that they believe that God is bigger than these things. They believe that the, the, the reality is bigger than simply just these problems that they have. And that's the source of their joy, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in them. So no, rejoicing, when we speak about rejoicing in the Lord, this is not an emotion. We can be rejoicing in the Lord, even though we have negative emotion. I can still have a, a, a view of life as a positive view, as a hopeful view, as a one where I am I'm in the bosom of the Father, right? While at the same time, I experience momentary and day-to-day -day negative emotions about different things that I don't like that's happening to me, and yet I accept them. <clears throat> Somebody says, I want to donate money to your church without giving away who I am, based on this verse, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So which option should I choose? So um, I, I would just advise anyone who would like to donate to the church in an anonymous way, just... Um, uh, maybe you can, um, you know, uh, have a, uh, like create a, if you really want to be anonymous and you don't want anyone absolutely to know, just create an email address that's, you know, not identifiable as you and email us at info at stpaulhouston.org. And we'll talk about what, you know, what the best way is. Okay. Info at stpaulhouston.org. <clears throat> Number three, why did our Lord Jesus choose Moses and Elijah to transfigure with him on Mount Tabor? So this is the miracle of the transfiguration, which is one of the feasts of the Lord that we celebrate in the church. And we know this is uh, this account where um, uh, Christ takes three of the apostles with him up to the mountain. And there he transfigures. He begins to shine and light in all his glory. And there appears with him uh, Moses and Elijah also uh, appearing like radiant in their, you know, in, in, in glory with Christ. Okay. And this is the, the miracle of the transfiguration. So the question is, is why out of anyone else who could appear uh, with Christ, why Moses and Elijah and why, why them at all? Okay. So uh, Moses and Elijah, they represent two different things. And um, the, the, the idea here is that Christ is manifesting his glory. Okay. And, 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 and he, is, he is revealing himself as the Messiah, right? He's revealing himself as the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And Moses represents the law because he's the one who wrote the first five books of the, of the Bible, the, the books of the law. He's the one who recorded the, tablet, the, the Ten Commandments, the one who received them from God, written by the finger of God. So this is the, he represents the law, Moses. Elijah represents the prophets, okay, who are all of the messengers, the people that God has sent throughout the years, throughout the history of Israel to speak uh, messages to the people, okay. So Moses and Elijah, both in the law and in the prophecies, they both pointed to and witnessed to the coming of the Messiah, who is Christ, right, who is now transfiguring there before them. Okay, so that's one reason is the symbolism here. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Okay. But there's other things you can meditate on this and say, well, who, 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 what are the differences between these two people? And what does it mean? Moses, for instance, we know that he was married. Okay. And Elijah, he was celibate. Okay. Both are paths of salvation. Okay. Moses, the married man, right. He received salvation through Christ and Elijah, the celibate man. He also received salvation Christ. Moses represents baptism because he is the one who emerged from the Red Sea. So <clears throat> the, 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 the passing of the, of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea is a symbol of baptism, right? Like which is the first step in the life of a believer is for them to become baptized. So Moses represents this baptism because he was the one who led the people through the symbolic baptism in the Red Sea, okay? And Elijah, right, we know about him that he was a fiery prophet, right? And he was like a symbol of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the, 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 the kinds of miracles that he did, the, the way that he preached in boldness, um, and this idea of being fiery is a symbol of being filled with the Holy Spirit, which represents 
uh, confirmation, which is the, the sacrament that's done immediately after baptism. So again, there's like a continuity there between what Moses represents, baptism, and what Elijah represents, which is confirmation or chrismation. Um, Moses also, he symbolizes humility and patience, right? In the Bible, in Numbers 12.3, um, it says about Moses, it says, he, uh, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who are on the face of the earth, right? He was very humble. He was very meek. He was very patient in order for him to deal with, uh, you know, the, the, the throngs of people that were following him in the wilderness, right? So Moses represents humility and patience. Elijah, on the other hand, he represents strength and courage, right? He was the uh, he was the prophet to stand up against the priests of Baal, uh, who essentially he accused them of being false priests. He, he, you know, demonstrated in front of them that their God, Baal, is a false God. And he did so in a very courageous uh, and brave way, right? Um, so, so again, it's showing different, um, different types of personalities, even, right? Moses being like kind of a meek and, 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 pay, and humble person. And actually he did not even want to be put in the spotlight, Moses, when, when God called him to, to, to serve and to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses, you know, he didn't want to do it. He said, you know, send somebody else, you know, I'm not qualified and so on. Whereas Elijah was very bold, you know, very courageous and so on. So again, it shows that God calls all kinds of different people and uses all kinds of different people and saves all kinds of different people. You know, we, we, everyone, God has given to each one different uh, talents, different characteristics that God wants us to use in his service. Okay. Um, Moses, he symbolizes the life of service because he is, um, you know, he was called by God to serve, right? And to live among the people and to lead a lot of people. Elijah was more uh, leading a life of solitude, right? Because he didn't have like a huge number of people he was leading. He lived in the wilderness, like he was far away from everyone. So, so again, even in the lifestyle, right? Some people are uh, called to serve and to have a life of service. Uh, other people are called to a life of solitude, like the monastics, for instance. So in a lot of ways, Moses and Elijah are different. Um, and yet they still were both a plan like used by god in his plan of salvation they both testified to him as the messiah they came from different walks of life they had different characteristics about their personality but in in, in both of them they manifested and witnessed to the lord and so here christ was kind of um showing that the 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 witness that had come from moses and the witness that had come from elijah were both testifying of him um even though they lived in different eras and they were very different from one another. Could you please go over all the eras of the history of the Coptic church and the most prominent characteristics of each era very briefly? This is a very big topic, and so I won't be able to really to get into it now, but I think it is a, it's an interesting topic. So I'll tell you how I learned about some of this. So um, when, I, um, when I studied in the seminary uh, years ago, before I became a priest, um, one of the courses uh, that you take is a Coptic history, okay? And while there is a lot of history um, that is known about Christianity, you know, in the early days, and, you know, we read about the ecumenical councils, and we read a lot of things that covers, like, a lot of the Orthodox Church, like, in, in, you know, in the early years of the church, um, to the, the, the details of actually what happened specifically in the Coptic Church um, and, and, you know, all throughout its history, and especially in the early years, um, is very much um, unknown. And you don't find a lot of places where it's, it's recorded for various reasons um, and recorded in any real detail. So when I, when I took this course in the seminary, I was really blown away by, you know, how much we know and what happened, all the important figures and characters and events and things, and really how like the, the strength and the faith of the Coptic people was so strong, despite persecution from every possible angle you can imagine, um, all throughout, you know, really since the beginning of the formation of the Church of Alexandria, there was persecution, and that persecution continued all the way up until the present. So um, it, it's a very interesting topic. It's something that I think um, we all benefit from learning more about. 
you know, a lot of times these topics about history can can tend to be a bit dry, uh, but uh, but I think they they are very important. I'll just share with you one one thing that I, I've said this story to, before, and it's one of the things that really um, sticks out in my mind so much uh, of, of something that we learned from the Coptic history. So there was, uh, you know, so in the in the seventh century. Um, there was uh, the Islamic invasion of Egypt. At the time, Egypt, after having be become a Christian nation, you know, St. Mark preached in Egypt, became a Christian nation, um, and, and lived essentially predominantly or wholly uh, as, 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 a, as a Christian nation. Um, and then in the seventh century, um, this was with the Islamic invasion. And so since the time of the Islamic invasion, there was severe persecution on the church, um, all kinds of things. Uh, the, the people would be killed uh, unless they converted to Islam. They would be forced to pay very, very high taxes. Churches would be destroyed. And um, persecution was just rampant left and right, like constantly. And, and you'd see it. And really, this is one of the benefits of studying this is you see um, the, the real, uh, you know, uh, like the real faith of the people and how they persevered and how they turned to God in the midst of all of this. Um, but there's one particular event that kind of always kind of, to me, um, shows the, the way that, that the people, you know, really serve the Lord and use their gifts for the service of God and to serve the church. So there was this one situation where um, what was happening is that there were, there's a caliphate, the Islamic caliphate, which is like, if you want to say, it's kind of like the worldwide Islamic empire, and then it has like a ruler, Okay, or the caliph. Okay, the caliph he would have governors who would then be responsible for the different countries and areas um, that are under the caliphate. So in this case, uh, whenever uh, Egypt was conquered um, by Islam, there would be a governor who was called a wali. This wali would be the governor who was put as the head of uh, Egypt. Okay, and his responsibility was to keep the people in line to to extract money as much as possible and to convert people to Islam like that is his role okay and so he is uh, he, he, he is accountable to the caliph okay uh, to do that and one of the things that these wellies would do in order to kind of solidify their notoriety to solidify like their place in history is they would build a mosque every every wali governor of Egypt um, would build a mosque, and they would try to build a mosque that is of greater, um, you know, gr greater, re greater renown than the, the, the one from the previous well. And the wellies would, there would be very high turnover for these wellies because, um, you know, if somebody didn't do something that the caliph wanted, he would be removed and replaced with another one. They, they always wanted to just extract as much as they could from the Copts as much as possible. So um, at the time, you know, in the early days, uh, the construction of the mosques and really all, all construction uh, was done by using columns, right? So if you wanted to support a large building, you would have to support it with many, many, many columns because that was the only type of architecture that was really known at the time. And the, the Coptic people were, were, um, were actually very, uh, very good um, architects. And when they would build their churches, they would build them with the columns and so on. So the, 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 is, the Islamic empire, right? The, 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 the conquerors, okay? They did not have the ability to build the mosques themselves. So they would, they would task the, the Copts to essentially build it for them. And they would take the, the columns that were um, used for the building of existing churches. They would destroy the church. They would take the, the columns and then they would use those columns to build a mosque. And so every Wally that would come wanted to build a bigger and grander mosque. And so he would have to destroy more and more and more churches to get all of these columns in order to do it. So at the time there was a, um, an engineer, a Coptic engineer, um, uh, and his name was Saeed Al-Faraghiri. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he seeing this situation, okay. And he saw of how much all these churches were having to be destroyed in order to build the mosque. So. Um, he came up with a new style of architecture, which actually history records it as being having been discovered and invented in Europe 
years later, which is now called the Gothic architecture, which is the building with arches, okay? Um, actually, even before history attributes it to European architecture as being the Gothic architecture, this was something that was developed by this man, okay? This Coptic person uh, who did it not because he was doing research, he did it because he wanted to save the church, right? And so he proposed this idea to the Wali of he would now be able to build for him a mosque that was unique, that no other building, uh, no other mosque uh, that came before him would be able to be built in such a way that used arches for support instead of the columns. And so the Wali liked the idea because it makes him very special and unique. And so he was actually able to do it using very, very few columns and, and using a lot more of these arches. And so this man saved you know, so many of the churches from destruction at the time. Ultimately, this man was killed. Uh, he was, um, you know, he, he was martyred um, because the, the Wally didn't like something else that he did. But it gives you a taste and a flavor for the kinds of things that all throughout uh, the Coptic church, all throughout in Egypt has happened that has shaped the church, has shaped the faith of the people that really, you know, this is a, a church and a people that have been under persecution for such a long time and and the, the really the benefits and the way that the church was preserved as a result of you know the suffering that experienced and how they had to turn to god in every way for their survival um and while of course it's not something that we want um but god used this as a way to kind of glorify himself in the church glorify himself in its people so definitely um if there is an opportunity if there's interest in something like that we can try to do a deeper study um, onto different, you know, eras of history of the church um, and try to kind of learn some more things and get some more um, lessons from, from that. Number five, do we know where St. Matthias preached and how his life ended? So we know about St. Matthias that uh, he was born in Galilee and we know that he was chosen really his, the first time he's mentioned um, is uh, in the book, uh, in the in the, in the book of Acts, when he is chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, okay, um, after the res after Christ's resurrection, okay, so he is uh, he's there's a lot that's uh, that's cast to see who would be the one to replace Judas, and it falls on Matthias, and so he becomes one of the twelve, okay. Um, after this point, he he goes and he preaches in Judea and Samaria. So Judea is the area where uh, Jerusalem is so local locally. Samaria is uh, to the north, okay, uh, of there uh, to the Samaritan people. Cappadocia is another place that he preached, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, um, and then it's also said that he went to Ethiopia, where he preached there to a city of cannibals, okay. And there in that place, they it says that they plucked out his eyes and they actually threw him in prison, okay. Um, he went on after that preaching uh, in the city called Bartus, which is in Cappadocia in, in modern day Turkey. Um, but they also seized him there um, and they didn't accept him uh, or what he had to, to preach and they imprisoned him. Uh, at that time in this city, okay, St. Matthias, uh, he was praying and he asked for the Virgin Mary to, to, uh, to intercede for him. This is a time when St. Mary was still alive. So this wasn't, this wasn't, um, after she had departed, but she wished she was still living. And so he asked St. Mary to, uh, to help him. And so she came uh, floating on a cloud, came to the city, okay? And when she entered the city where he was, all of the iron in the city melted uh, as, as though it was wax, okay? This is actually a feast uh, that is celebrated in the church on the 21st of Baona. Um, and we read about it in the Synexarian on that day. Um, this is actually, uh, my name is after the name of St. Matthias, because that is the day that I was ordained a priest, which is on the, the day celebrating that feast. So, um, St. Mary entered the city, all of the iron in the city turned to wax. She went to the prison, she released St. Matthias, um, and all those who were imprisoned with him, right, who were there imprisoned because of their faith. The governor, when he saw that this happened, okay, he wanted to see the Virgin Mary, um, and so she, she and St. Matthias went to him and actually she healed his son who was possessed um, or, I, or he, he healed the son who was possessed, I'm not, I don't remember. Um, and then once that happened, 
all of the people in the city believed, right? St. Mary prayed again and all the iron changed back to iron like it was before. And she left back up again on this cloud that she came. St. Matthias taught them, these people in the city of Bartus in Cappadocia, taught them the faith, baptized the people of the city. He ordained priests for them. Um, and he, he left them and he resumed his preaching. He also went to the city of Damascus in Syria. Um, and he preached there. Uh, and uh, the people there also became angry. They seized him. They tormented him. Um, they put him on a bed of iron, uh, like iron nails, and they lighted a fire under it, which and the fire did not harm him. And his face was shining and glowing like God was protecting him. Um, and they also saw this miracle and they were amazed at what, what was happening. And so they believed in Christ also at, the, at, at his hands. And he baptized them as well and ordained priests for them. So he stayed with them for a while. Uh, and then he returned to Jerusalem. Ultimately, in Jerusalem, he was stoned by the Jews, and he was martyred in the year 68 AD, and we commemorate his martyrdom on the uh, the eighth day of Baramhat in the Synaxion. We read about his um, departure. So yeah, he, he preached um, locally in the area of Judea and, uh, and Samaria. He preached in Asia Minor. He preached in, which is Cappadocia. He, he preached also in Ethiopia. Um, and ultimately, he was martyred in Jerusalem by the Jews. What do you do with yourself when you realize that there is someone that you don't love from your heart? So I, I think I've mentioned this point before, but it's important for us to understand what do we mean by love, right? Um, love is not an emotion. Love is an act, right? In Luke 6, 32, it says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, right? So here, when Christ is speaking about love, he's speaking about love as an action, not an emotion, right? He didn't mean that we should feel warm feelings, like friendly feelings toward our enemies. He, he's, he's not saying that. He continues in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Okay, so this is the love that Christ is asking of us, right? Do good, lend, right? Do something positive, do something good for them, not an emotion, okay? So when we see someone that's in need, we have an opportunity to serve them. When we see someone who is lacking something, we have an opportunity to give to them. When we see someone who is failing or struggling in something, we have an opportunity to pray for them or to to help them in whatever way that we can. We don't have to enjoy the company of those people that, that we don't like, okay? We don't have to enjoy their company. We don't have to enjoy the company of people that have harmed us, right? We don't have to be in their company. We don't have to choose to be in their company. But if there is something that I can do within my ability or power to serve someone who has hurt me, right, then this is love. This is a Christian love. And, and here when it says in this verse, Luke 6, 35, where it says, for he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. You know, how is it that God is going to win over the unthankful and the evil and the wicked? He's going to win them through his love, that they are going to see his love and they're going to turn from their wicked ways and embrace him because they see his love for him. And he wants us to be that vessel, to be able to demonstrate that love to the people, right, through us, that they would see the love of God toward them through us, right? So, so, so we are doing the work of God and the work of salvation Whenever we um, show kindness and love to those people, even if we don't have the emotional love toward them. That's actually when the, the, the acts of love are the strongest. The acts of love are the greatest. The acts of love are the most holy because we do them because we know it is right to. This is the Christian love, not because we feel it. Actually, in verse 32, it says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Like if you have this warm type of feelings of love toward another person, and that person feels the same to you, there's no credit in that. Even sinners love those who love them. Like there's no, there's no, there's nothing strange or, or, um, you know, meritorious, honorable about loving someone who loves you. That's just normal, natural. That's just what any of us would experience, right? But he, but he's saying the, to love someone who does not love you, this is the demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. This is the demonstration of the work of God, okay? 
So the more I meditate on the goodness of God, the more I, I meditate on my undeservedness of the love that I have received from God, it's easier for me to serve and to show Christian love to others because I myself am undeserving of it from God himself. I, what have I done to deserve the love of God, right? So it makes it easier for me to serve other people. We can pray, ask God to soften our hearts to be able to serve others just as Christ serves us, you know? In Romans 5, 8, we should always remember this verse, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like he didn't wait for us to be good to him. He didn't wait for us to, to change and then to begin to, to perform his act of love. He did his act of love and that his act of love is what transforms us to, to love him, to see him as he is. Okay. <clears throat> Number seven. When a priest or any clergy is ordained, do they pick their own cross to hold or does the higher ranks pick the cross for them? Typically, the bishop who ordains will give uh, a cross as a gift uh, on the day of ordination. But this is just like one cross that, that, you know, is given as a gift, but there's no obligation to use that cross or that, that somehow that's the only cross that the priest has. So typically priests will obtain through many different ways, like many crosses throughout their, their ministry. Either they will buy crosses, they will be gifted crosses from people. Um, some people even make crosses for them. Um, you know, usually priests have many crosses and then they can decide on what particular day what they want to use what cross. Um, and that's the case of both the, the handheld cross as well as the pectoral cross. The pectoral cross is the cross that the priest has around his neck that he carries with him. Um, again, like priests might have different, you know, many different ones that they've received over the years. Number eight, is there a rule for when to turn the other cheek and when to speak up? Okay. Um, so let's read the commandment. Okay, the, this idea of turning the other cheek. Okay, let's understand what that means. Uh, and, and so let's read what Christ said about this idea of turning the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter five. So he says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was the command of the Old Testament. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So there's three points that are mentioned here, all kind of associated with one another. The first one is the idea of turn the other cheek. If some evil person slaps us on the right cheek, we turn to him the left cheek. Okay, that's the first. The second one is what? If somebody wants to sue us and take something away from us unlawfully, then, then not only do we give it to him, but we give him more than what he asks, okay? And then the third is that if somebody is compelling us to do something against our will, we're willing to go even further than what they ask us to do, okay? So turning the other cheek here, we have to ask the question, is this a literal command? Is it a literal command to literally, when someone hits me, that I'm going to just not do anything and just offer my other cheek to be slapped, okay? To answer this question, let's look at two examples of when this actually happened in the scripture. The first one that we'll look at is St. Paul, and the second one was Christ himself, okay? So um, when it happened with St. Paul, this is in Acts uh, 23, so it says this. Then Paul looking earnestly at the council. This is when Paul is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the council, okay, of the Jews. And he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Okay, so this is this is falling under exactly what this, this verse that Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount is applying to. When somebody hits you on your, your face, okay, offer them the other, okay. So what did St. Paul do? It says, then St. Paul said, God will strike you, you wash, whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Okay. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. 
For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So St. Paul, when he was struck, okay, his, he did not just stay silent and say, okay, now strike me again. Like that wasn't, that wasn't the response. But at the same time, there was no vengeance. There was no hatred. There was no like trying to get even, right? There was no violence. There was no cursing. Um, actually, St. Paul responded very respectfully, okay? And actually, even when he found out that the person who was speaking to him was the high priest, he was like even more respectful, right? And said, no, I shouldn't have even have said what I said, you know? Um, but but it, it, he was defending himself. He was commenting on how, how he was being treated was unlawful, right? Um, the other example is Christ, okay? It says in John 18, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask to those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Right. So again, what was the response? Jesus did not just stay silent, and now he's going to let somebody else hit him again. He responded. He defended what it is that he had done or didn't do. Right. And he is giving an answer to condemn what the way that he is being treated. Right. So the idea here of turning the other cheek and speaking up, these are not like mutually exclusive. Like it's not like either I'm going to say, well, either I'm going to turn the other cheek or I'm going to speak up. No, actually speak, you know, like, like, like speak with uh, respect, speak the truth, um, do, do what it is that you can to defend yourself. If, you know, if, if, if you are injured by another person, but don't, transgress the law of God to get what you think you deserve, right? Like some people say the ends justify the means, right? right? Like if, so, if, somebody, if somebody mistreats me, then that means that I have every right to mistreat them. I have every right to lie, to cheat, to steal, to do anything within my power in order to uh, get back at them, to get make sure that justice is done. That's not what Christ did. And that's not what Christ said, right? So, so turning the other cheek is not like the literal command of doing that. It is a spirit of meekness, a spirit of forgiveness, right? Accepting to be wronged rather than to break the commandment. I would rather be wronged, defend myself, yes, but not breaking the commandment to, to defend myself, not, not taking revenge, not trying to, you know, do exactly what it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which was the command of the Old Testament, right? So, so it, it is, there's nothing wrong with defending ourselves we, we we do that all the time right we do that all the time but we do so respectfully we do so without breaking the commandment of god <clears throat> in terms of the great lent why is it called the great lent if the hymns for it are sad so i think this is referring to the idea of why do we call it great um so so let's first of all what does the word lent mean okay the word lent is a shortened form of a word in Old English. The word is lengthen. Lengthen means spring season. That's what the word means. Um, the word Lent has nothing to do with the church, right? It's an it's a Old English word that means spring season. So according to the Orthodox English Dictionary, okay, the word might have some reference to the lengthening of days uh, that's happening during this, the period of the spring. And so the word itself is just referring to a season of time in the year, which is the time where the fast occurs, the, the, the great Lent. And we call it great because not, not, well, for two reasons. One, it's great because it's um, referring to the, like, like the, the coming of the, of the Messiah, like the greatest feast of the year, which is the feast of the resurrection. So this is the fast that comes before that. Um, and great also because it is the longest of the fasts of the church, right? But in the in the Orthodox Church, we don't even call it Lent, right? The the term Lent is is typically more of a Catholic phrase term to 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 um, to uh, describe it. 
we call it the holy great fast, right? That's 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 the term that we use to describe it. It's the period of 55 days prior to the feast of the resurrection where we are fasting. Um, it's it's you know it's it's a significant fast fast because it's one of the most ascetic of the year. It's one where no seafood is allowed and it's the longest of the year, right? 55 days. So it prepares us for the coming of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord. The hymns are not intended to be sad, but they're intended to be self-reflective in the sense that there are certain tunes that when I hear them, the idea is not just to be sad. The idea is to be maybe introspective, right? Um, this is a period of fasting, of almsgiving, of prayer, reading, confession. The, the, the words of the hymns, the tunes of the hymns, are all pointing me, and even the readings that we read, they're all pointing me to the idea of self-control, of repentance, of prayer, of giving to the poor, um, you know, of, of this. So this is why it's a great period. It's a great period because it's long. It's a great period because of the season that it's in and the thoughts, the types of thoughts that we should be having during this period of time, the Holy Great Fast. I think this will probably be the last question we get to. So in, in Luke chapter 2, we read that the parents brought the child Jesus to the temple to do to him according to the law. What is it that they did? At first, I thought it was circumcision. But according to the law, a boy should be circumcised eight days after his birth. That's correct. So let's read um, the events that happen, okay, in Luke chapter 2, and then let's correlate them to what the law says is required, okay? So in Luke 2, starting in verse 21, it says, and when eight days were completed for the resurrection of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, okay? So so in, the, in verse 21 is when the circumcision happened, okay? Eight days after the birth of Christ, he was circumcised according to the law. We're gonna read the law in a second. So that's the first thing that happened. Then in the following verse it says, and now when the days of her purification, her St. Mary, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, the child, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what it, it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. This event is not the circumcision, but we call it the presentation of the Lord to the temple. And this is actually a separate feast in the church. The feast of the circumcision is one of the feasts of the Lord. And the feast of the presentation of the Lord to the temple is another feast. Okay. And it, when is the timing, right? The, the, the circumcision was done eight days after the birth. The presentation uh, of Christ to the temple, it says, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed. So let's read in the book of Leviticus, this is in Leviticus chapter 12, to understand the relationship between the circumcision, when that's supposed to happen, and this other thing, this presentation of, uh, to the temple, okay, and, and when, when, what is this purification that it's talking about? So this is in Leviticus chapter 12, it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So this is the command that says that the, the boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. It also says that the woman is in the state of impurity for, the, for seven days. Then it says what, um, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. Okay, so this means these 33 days plus the original seven days is a total of 40 days of impurity for the woman who gave birth. She shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So it's the, the, the length of time is different for, for a girl. But for the boy, it says uh, a total of 40 days of this period of purification. Okay. Let's continue. 
Okay, so that, that first part is speaking primarily about the circumcision. What about the, the next couple of verses speaking about the presentation to the temple? It says, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, okay, so that for the, for, for, for a, the birth of a male, this is now 40 days, we just said. The days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter. She shall bring to a, the, the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And he shall be clean and, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood this is the law for her who was born a, a male or a female, okay? So this second command, right, which is done after the days of purification are fulfilled, which is to go to the temple to present the child and to offer a sacrifice on his behalf, okay? That's what the presentation is. So in Luke 2, 22, which is after the circumcision has been done, it says, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, so that's after 40 days, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, okay? Um, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, okay? So that's what, that's fulfilling that part of Leviticus. So this uh, is saying, two things in, in Luke chapter two. The first is the circumcision on the eighth day. The second is the presentation of the Lord of the temple on the 40th day. Now, if you look at the, uh, the dates that in the church we celebrate these feasts, it corresponds to this timing, okay? So we celebrate the nativity, the birth of Christ on the 29th of Kiak, which corresponds to January 7th, okay, usually. The Feast of Circumcision that we celebrate is exactly eight days after, okay, on the eighth day, all right? So this would be on January 14th. So we celebrate the feast on January 6th at night. So eight days later would be on January 14th. This is eight days after the Nativity Feast we celebrate. But then we celebrate the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord to the Temple on February 15th. And this is 40 days after the nativity. So the same relative timing from when Christ was born to the time that he was circumcised to the time that he was presented to the temple is the same timing that we use in the celebration of these feasts relative to the feast of the nativity. And it's all following the command that God had given to the people in Leviticus um, chapter 12. So that's the distinction between the feast of circumcision the event of the circumcision of the Lord and the event of his presentation to the temple. Okay, um, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Um, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, O God, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do. We ask that you guide us and protect us and lead us to your kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.